The following program is proudly sponsored by the Australia Institute, one of the country's most influential progressive think tanks. Based in Canberra, the Institute conducts research that matters into important economic, social and environmental issues. Visit the Institute's website, www.tai.org.au, to find out about their monthly politics in the pub evenings, to sign up for their free e-bulletin, or to make a tax-deductible donation. G'day, you're on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM, and uh, you're on Behind the Lines. Welcome to Friday morning. We have a big show for you today. We've got a big swag of people in the studio. Um, we have Silas Brown. G'day, Silas. G'day, how are you going? Good, good, good. So Silas Brown is from uh, Thriving Foodscapes and a sustainable gardener, and he's... Uh, doing all sorts of stuff. So our show today is on urban agriculture, and that might explain why we have have so many of these people hanging around in the studio. They're going to be doing hillbilly style, because there's not enough mics for all these people in here. Uh, Elizabeth Goodfellow, g'day, how are you? Very good, good morning. Yeah, you're from 100 Kilos, and we also have the Bateses. We have Greg and Katie Bates. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, good thanks. Yeah, good. Okay. Now, all these organisations, we, we have Permablitz, we have Urban Homesteading Club, there's Lyman, Colum, Lyman Commons, 100 Kilos, Urban Agriculture Australia. Canberra's going off. Why didn't I know about all this? You've got to get out and uh, meet a whole lot of people. Uh, if, you, know, if we, you just move in front we, of the mic. We started uh, hearing about Permablitz ACT and then... Um, we heard about Lyman and Lyman Commons, and then we got in heard about the uh, Canberra City Farm, and it just sort of snowballs from there. Everyone sort of connected. Yeah, nice, nice. Um, well, agriculture. Why? Why should we bring it into the the, uh, the urban realm? What, what's wrong with it being out somewhere, way past the back of beyond, where we can't see it? Well, I think uh, cities generally haven't included agriculture in them. They've uh, been providing us with protection because the more people who are together, we're easier to protect ourselves and uh, a meeting place and also a place for commerce. But uh, I see urban agriculture as um, enhancing all three of those things. If our meeting places have more plants and edible food in them, better meeting places, and by growing our own food, we have more security. And if we grow our own food, we can sell it too. So it enhances commerce. All right. So um, I, I personally would like to say I, I like being able to grow food uh, at my doorstep. I like being able to um, you know, decide, okay, let's have eggs for breakfast. Oh, we need, we need some herbs to go with them. Out I, tr- out I open the door, out I trot in my pyjamas and slippers and pluck the fresh herbs from my back door and then you know, in and finish making the breakfast. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's very appealing for, for our family lifestyle. So it's actually it's the ultimate convenience food in that sense, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's also very important in the fact that um, obviously being in urban areas, um, it's an extremely high population that live in the cities, thus the cities, and it's very important for families to teach their children where our foods are sourced from. A lot mm. of children these days think that if you... You go and get your milk from the supermarket, but they don't realise it actually came from the cow before it got to the supermarket. You you think back to 
say, 100 or 200 years ago, there would have been cows and sheep running through the streets of all our cities and we wouldn't have been able to transport it so far. What happened to make sure to make uh, agriculture sort of disappear from our lives? It's pretty much invisible at the moment. Well, I think urban sprawl has had a lot to do with that. So what was farms has largely become houses now, which actually means in Australia, um, a lot of the prime farmland is now, you could say, under houses, if you like, um, in suburban areas. But what that also means and why urban agriculture is such a good idea is that a lot of the best soils in the country are in our suburbs now as well. So that's actually an amazing resource to be using. And I have to say, I've, I've moved um, out of Canberra towards Yass a few in the last few years and I've really noticed the difference in the resources there's actually so many more resources so much more easily accessible when you're in the city um, that you've actually got to work a lot harder to get when when you're elsewhere so it makes a lot of sense to use those resources efficiently by actually growing things around the city and in, in an urban sense because the resources are there so use them rather than trucking everything around the countryside um, many times over it uh, actually just makes a lot of health sense it makes a lot of environment sense and also I don't know about you guys but I know when I grow fruit and veggies at home I actually eat a lot more fruit and veggies because they're just there and I can't bear to waste them so my health is actually better because I've got more vegetables right in front of my face so I can't ignore them. Yeah, exactly that's um, uh, one thing that we found this uh, um, through uh, Katie and I uh, Katie set up the, the Bates homestead and um, we started recording our produce because of the fact that we heard about the 100 kilo org and for instance um, we produced 19 kilos of raspberries now if you bought 19 kilos of raspberries at a shop that's like $600 worth of raspberries and you're not likely to consume that many raspberries unless it's in your own backyard and our kids love the fact that they're fresh and they'd like to use that term this is as fresh as it gets and they walk <laughs> up to the raspberry patch and eat it straight into their mouth without touching it. Yeah. <laughs> Great, yeah. So can you just explain a little bit about the, the urban homesteading and the 100 kilos movement, anybody? Sure, I can start with 100 kilos. So um, we're a community organisation that's largely based around the capital region at the moment, but we have aspirations to become national. Uh, what we do is run community events and an online community as well. Um, so people may have seen us out and about running harvest swaps. We've also got some harvest share boxes in a couple of locations around Canberra. So what, what's Yacht a harvest Manor. share box? So a harvest share box is literally a box that's at your local cafe or community centre or school where anybody can bring extra homegrown produce that they've got. Uh, what works really well with this is so you bring your extra produce and actually what we find is when people do this what you've got in your yard is different to what I've got so it, it does a couple of things it makes sure that extra doesn't get wasted but it also means if you're a keen gardener and you've got lots growing you don't have to overdose on whatever you've got a lot of in your garden at the moment because you can get access to um, what other people are growing and exchange it but how this is also working is we've linked in with uh, Oz Harvest, the food rescue organisation in Canberra. So with these boxes, anytime there is a, a large amount um, in the boxes and it looks like it, it might not turn over fast enough, Oz Harvest will come and pick it up and that gets it into the community food system. So it's getting to refuges and shelters and places like that all around the community. So literally nothing gets wasted and great food is getting to, to people who need it and want it. Yeah, right. So it's just a, uh, a collection of antibodies over harvest. 
that's right. It's really simple. There's no money involved. There's no fun police. You just bring some or take some as you, as you can. Yeah, nice, nice. And where, where is that operating? So there's one at the food co-op in Acton. There's one at the Griffith Butchers. We'll probably get one into Braddon shortly uh, and into a couple of other locations. And what we're looking at doing is from November onwards, really getting a lot more of those out. The ones that are out at the moment are kind of a test case to make sure it all worked how we wanted, which it looks like it is. Um, so if people would like to get those in their community and they're not there yet, then probably get in touch with us um, through the Facebook page or email us with a question at 100kilos.org. Um, and we'll absolutely want to see those all through all the communities all around Canberra. Yeah, right. So, Katie, how, how would... Um how would somebody get a garden that is really overproducing like that? I mean, <laughs> so, surprisingly, we did it very easily. Al, um, <laughs> do you want to talk about? Greg, Greg can talk about what we did at the Bates Homestead, and then I can talk about how, if you don't have those gardening skills, you can perhaps tap into the the Permablitz ACT system. So, Greg, um, well, I suppose we just started with. Um, what we wanted to produce. Um, I like to have a, a good variety. So um, choose what type of, um, whether you want to put in seedlings or whether you want to put in seeds. Um, a lot of uh, information is very uh, readable, uh, uh, reliable, or you can easily get it off the internet if you don't have anyone else to talk to. But again, like Katie was saying, uh, if you're not sure what you're doing, get involved with um, some of these organisations that you're hearing about on the radio. Um, and you don't need a big area. Uh, a lot of, uh, quite a lot of our produce was just produced in pots that was sitting on our paving. Um, sure, we did have quite a, a, a reasonable size um, ground cover, um, but we uh, replaced our grass with food beds. So instead of having to mow your like water and mow your lawn water your vegetables and then you can actually get uh, uh food from it yeah yeah it's a funny thing isn't it i mean we're largely grass eaters you look at all the grains and everything we eat we're, we're grass eaters but the grass that we grow in our house is not not very good for harvesting <coughs> madness Mad yeah, yeah. madness so what permablitz act uh aim aims to do is basically turn those tired suburban lawns that you might have either in your front or your backyard and turn them into edible gardens with vegetables or fruit trees you can put in nuts berries like we had raspberries and also remember to put in some native vegetation uh, to build up the habitat in your area I mean bees is an important um, pollinator that we need to be looking after and it's good to have uh, a uh, um, flowers that uh, produce pollen and nectar throughout the whole year to help build um, you know, bee colonies. They're very important for pollinating. I don't know about you, but I don't fancy uh, being like China and have to have little people up ladders in trees with paintbrushes to pollinate the flowers. That seems a very labour-intensive way to do it. I'd much prefer the bees who are definitely genetically made for pollinating uh, to do all the work for me. It's about working smarter and... Yeah, so what's happened there? Sorry? What's happened there? What, what's going on in China? Um, from, uh, from my understanding of what's happened in China is that they're, they're over-polluted uh, and the bee colonies have just collapsed. Um, so, uh, which means a lot of the 
products that used to be pollinated by what they call the European honeybee is uh, not there anymore. Um, I think it's very important uh, to have the vegetation to support the honeybees and um, Katie and I do have uh, bees and we got the bees uh, specifically to pollinate our garden. Um, I have heard reports that um, that pollination can increase up to 30% if you have bees in your local area compared to if you don't and we definitely saw that in our produce from once we had bees to, uh, when we didn't have bees to when we had bees um, we got a lot more pollination um, but I think it's also very important to have that other vegetation not just for the honeybee but also for the native bee and all of the other um, insects that are around because they're very important for instance um, we don't kill our wasps around our house and a number of times I've seen the wasps come down onto our plants and pick the um, caterpillars that are eating our food and they eat the caterpillars. Um, other plants, other good um, bugs are like the, the ladybug. They come and eat all the aphids off of the plants. So it's not just bringing in plants to bring the bees in, but it's also bringing in having an environment that's set up for all of the other insects that are actually helpful in the garden. And that seems to be one of the key things in the urban space is that people are, are very time pressured everywhere nowadays really. So things that are quick and easy and simple to do work really well, which is where what Greg's talking about in terms of the bees and the insects is great because essentially they're doing your work for you. You don't have to spray or worry about it because if you encourage them, you've got a whole workforce in there that's doing it all for you and you don't really have to lift a finger. So yeah. with a little bit of, of, of planning and organising, you can actually get something quite simple going with, with really minimal effort. Mm. And particularly with all of these groups around Canberra that you can link in with, as Katie said earlier, I think once you link with one, you end up connected to about half a dozen at least very quickly. <laughs> it's Canberra, everything's through networking. Um, so if people are new to growing things, then... Um, connecting with some of these groups because the expertise is, is certainly around. And if you've got that expertise, there's so many people who want to know how to grow things. Um, it's a skill that we seem to have, have lost in a couple of generations to some extent, but we've still got enough of it around and there's people so hungry for that information. Just a little bit of thought can get a really simple um, urban agriculture space going in, in quite a quick space of time, as you've demonstrated in your backyard last year. Yeah, so the Urban Homesteaders uh, group that we're also a part of um, is basically an online chat group, which is through Facebook. Uh, people post their questions or their information and there's the whole collective network who's able to provide information back to that person who's, you know, looking for that knowledge. So... Um, it's very diverse. You can find about, uh, you know, keeping chickens in your backyard. You can learn how to make a sourdough starter. You can learn how to brew mead and other, you know, apple cider and, and ferments. And it talks about, you know, pruning, how to prune your fruit trees and then, uh, you know, all sorts of baking and cooking ideas that, that follow on from that. They also have a monthly get-together and chat um, Last weekend we, we were at the Winds Meadery in Murrumbateman and we all brought our seed catalogues and all basically, you know, went through the catalogues and thought, so what are we going to put in our gardens this year? It was very much a chat and plan and talk about, you know, what we could do to put grow in our gardens. Everyone, you know, had heirloom seeds that, you know, they were their favourites that they talked about as well. So there's, you know, there's lots of collective knowledge out there that you can tap into. 
Yeah, interesting. You wanted to uh, say something earlier, Silas? Oh, the bees give you honey too. Yeah, the good thing about um, having bees in a suburban area is that a lot of people uh, don't realise that um, you get really good urban honey because there's such a variety of plants out there it's not just your yard but it's the, all the yards around your suburb that can produce the flavors to your honey whereas if you actually take your bees out into a farming area it can be very hard to get um, food for the bees throughout the year because you've got uh, limited resources you might want to have one crop or a few different trees and that's about it and is that why you see great big trucks full of beehives trucking around the countryside well yes because what they're doing is they're um they will take it generally from one monocrop to another monocrop um and that is one reason why um there's there's a number of reasons you can uh, look them up but they're um one of the reasons why bees are collapsing is because of the fact that they're taking the bees from one monocrop to another monocrop to another monocrop and what happens if if you eat apples for a month you might be good one apple a day but it's not good just to eat apples for a month and it's the same with the bees it's not good for them just to eat apples or nectar or pollen for for that time and then going to one other crop yeah interesting so tell us a little bit more about permablitz kate so permablitz um so think of i'm sure and this is going to show my age here but uh, there used to be a program on channel nine called backyard blitz where they had a, a group of gardeners they had landscapers and carpenters who come to your backyard and completely transform your backyard i think they did it more than overnight but you know they they took a the weekend to do it so permablitz is basically along those similar kind of lines we get a team of volunteers we come to your backyard and we transform it um, into an edible style garden but we're using permaculture principles to design your garden um, so there is usually um, a designer who would look to design your garden prior to the volunteers turning up there's actually quite a lot of work that goes into the design part of the process um, before you putting putting it in because permaculture is looking at permanent culture so we're looking at uh, perennial crops and tr fruit trees that are you know you can't move them around you've got to put them in the right place and you're looking at um, putting them in a place um, based on zones so the frequency that you need to go and visit those plants or that area is you know the distance that you put them from your house and you're also looking at um, you know the, the sun uh, you know, the length of daylight that those plants get and also the shading that goes with the, the seasons. So there's quite a lot of planning that goes into actually where you're going to place the elements in the garden. Um, so we have volunteer designers. Uh, we also have a list of professional uh, uh, permaculture designers who've done their permaculture design certificate um, qualified um, that, you can, that you can use. Um, and then it's basically, you know, it's up to the host um, to put together the resources. So you need to be able to be finding, you know, the compost and the soil and the, the timber and the plants that you want to uh, put in your own place. And then we get a, you know, a group of volunteers who come along and help you put it all together. 
Yeah, right. So how do you qualify for getting one of these teams around your place? So we work on a reciprocal um, basis. So it's kind of like you put in the effort on somebody else's garden and then you can have a group come and do your garden. So it's about, you know, working as a community and working as a team. And, they, you know, they're usually they're, they're lots of fun. Um, you know, we have a potluck lunch. Everyone sort of stops and has a... a, a something to eat in the middle, shares the stories, we talk about what we're going to do and it's all, it's all very good. There's nothing, um, I don't know, I, I like getting out there, getting my hands dirty in the soil and, you know, feel like you've done a good day's work. <laughs> it is good, it is. So I guess if you, if you don't have the time to put in at all, you're absolutely flat chat. Um, what, what can you do, Silas? Could you still get a permaculture garden put into your house, even though you've got no time at all to put in, but maybe you're working all the time and you've got a bit of money? Yeah, well, permaculture is about matching your needs to your landscape. So a permaculture designer would find out what experience you have in gardening, how much time you have to spend on gardening and your resources, and then I guess what your house can support, like what kind of sun aspect there is, uh, what kind of rainfall you have, and the climate you're in. So, yeah, we wouldn't install, say, a massive quarter-acre farm in your backyard. We'd install what would work for you as a permaculture designer. Hmm. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And something like fruit trees is great if you haven't got much time. If you, you're expecting to be around in Canberra for a while or you want to be really generous to the next people who might be <laughs> where you live at the moment, then putting in fruit trees and even raspberries, as Greg was saying earlier, they're generally pretty low maintenance. You do something a couple of times a year and you get bountiful fruit from them. That's a great deal. If you haven't got much time, dig a few holes, put a few fruit trees in. And, and if you're looking for some inspiration, go and have a look at the Lynham Commons and, and what they're doing there for some examples of, of what grows well here and, and um, how you could do that. There's generally time to go out to the backyard and pick an apple off the tree. That's right. <laughs> and raspberries grow like weeds. Yes, they do. They do. Um, so also when you're putting in the fruit trees, permaculture is also about putting in plants that support the tree in, it, in its growing. So you're also putting in plants that are going to perhaps bring up extra nutrients from the soil that are going to you know, assist the tree in producing its fruit. You're wanting to put in plants that are looking to have um, attract beneficial pollinators to pollinate your tree. Um, you're looking uh, you're putting in a, a collection of what they call in permaculture a guild of plants that support the tree in producing it, its fruit. Yeah, right. So how about animals in the system? Is it worth putting animals in? Yes, uh, chickens are a very productive animal to put into your system. So permaculture is about integrating elements and so connecting chickens to your vegetable garden. They can provide many services, to, things that you don't have to do. They can make compost. Um, they've got rakes for feet, so they're good at scratching and turning soil. Um, they love eating pests and you can even um, use a time element to introduce them into your vegetable garden just before their bedtime because they like to put themselves to bed just before dusk. So you put them in there and they'll just eat all the bugs without eating all your vegetables. So they're a great element to add. Yeah, nice, nice. And they so provide lots of manure as well, which is great fertiliser for the soil. Certainly, certainly. You, you say they won't eat your vegetables. Oh, if you time it right. <laughs> if you put them in just before their bedtime? They'll, um, 
They prefer to eat bugs. So they oh, eat all the bugs first and then put themselves to bed. It's bugs before bed. Yeah. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll have to try and remember that. Can you train chickens? They're a wild animal. You can't really train them. Uh, Just I become have friends with them. You can train them, them early. <laughs> <laughs> you can, if you um, have a schedule with a chook, they do like schedules. So if you want a, a group of... Have, two groups of chooks and you want them to free range but they're two different species and or two different breeds of chooks and you don't want to, them to cross mix you can get them used to a feeding time so you feed them in their coop area at a certain time of day if you do it every day on that type of day they will be in there waiting for the food then you can feed them you can lock the gate and you can let your next um, group of chooks out and you'll have a group of chooks in the morning free-ranging and a different group free-ranging in the afternoon. So you can get them to to uh, in and out of the coop if, as long as you're on a re- regular schedule. The good thing about chooks, especially around Canberra, is um, there's, there's fruit fly around Canberra and chooks are very, very good because what happens is that the grub goes down into the ground and the chooks scratch around the ground like Silas was saying, and they eat the fruit fly grubs before they can come up again and get the next season's crop. So they're very good at, at uh, reducing pest. Yeah, right. And they lay eggs. They lay eggs. <laughs> what else do they do? They must be good for more than that. They create heat. Heat? Yeah, so you can combine them with the greenhouse and they'll heat your greenhouse. Oh, that's pretty good. They, cr- they have feathers, so you can make pillows. And if you have too many roosters, well, you can make uh, chicken soup. Beautiful, beautiful. And also, if you don't like digging, which I have to say I'm in that category, if you put them on a piece of lawn or a garden that's that's you know, overtaken by weeds and just leave them for a week, you don't need to dig because they've scratched it all over. They've turned the soil, they've brought all the worms up, and it's just amazing the quality of the soil after that. And you basically... You might have had to lift a finger to get them in the right place, as Greg was saying, but the, the, all that hard shoveling, back-breaking work, unnecessary. That's right. And if you throw a bale of straw in there, they'll even spread it out for you. <laughs> <laughs> Too easy. Too easy. They're wonderful little beings, eh? Uh, so what other, what other sort of organisations are there around Canberra that are maybe not represented in this room but are, are good to know about? Probably the organic growers are, are good people to connect with. So they are, are an amazing source of expertise, but also they run a lot of workshops. So if you want to learn how to plant seeds or organise your garden or about you know different pest control methods and things like that, the organic gardeners are great. Um, also, the Horticulture Society of Canberra does a great newsletter. I can recommend to everybody that for every month, at the start of the month, they put out a newsletter that says what to do in the garden. So rather than think about it and figure out for Canberra climate, which I know for those of us who move in from elsewhere can be a bit tricky, um, the Horticultural Society of Canberra, so I think their website is HSOC, um, has a great newsletter. So I'd say sign up for that and keep an eye on it. It's an easy way to keep yourself organised. And there's always our local farmers. You know, we've got a great farmers market or two great farmers markets in Canberra. It's good to support them. And uh, there are also some uh, uh, market gardens popping up. There's three I know of now, and there's a new system called Community Supported Agriculture, CSA, where you pay for your vegetables or you pay your farmer for the vegetables before you get them, and then you get a box delivered, so you're investing in their crop. So Mm. that's a great system too. 
So the Canberra City Farms just kicked yeah. off one of those schemes, the CSA scheme. Um, so that's that's great, run by the, this local community organisation. I think they're also starting to get new people into farming with the city farms. So that's another one to look out for is the Canberra City Farm. The ACT Beekeepers Association, that's a good one to get um, into if you've got any information. The great, uh, sorry, if you need any information. The great thing about, they have a, a monthly meeting uh, and they have what they call the beginner's corner at the start. So any questions from anyone, you just ask the question and you get beekeepers that have been doing bees for years and years and their grandparents have been doing bees. You really get good information from people that know what they're doing. Um, there's also the Southern Harvest New South Wales. They provide, they do a lot of um, what are they, conferences, um, educational um, um, workshops. Um, they also have um, a stall at the Bungendore Farmers Market, um, and if you're, uh, you know, have extra produce in your backyard, you can actually take it to the Southern Harvest Table Association. They have a, a table where you can bring your excess produce, and they'll sell it for you. And in fact, um, Southern Harvest has a couple of events on next week. Um, so there's an expert, Anthony Flacavento from the US who's done lots of lots of urban agriculture work. He's going to be around, I think it's Wednesday night and Thursday morning next week. So have a look on the Southern um, Harvest website for that because that'll be a great event for those people who might be thinking about setting up either um, in their backyard or as a business because urban agriculture is very much a business proposition as well. It's not just a, a hobby farm. Uh, and Anthony is really one of the recognised experts in the world, so that's fabulous that, that Southern Harvest have got him organised to come, so we should be making sure we give him a really good welcome and picking his brains while he's here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an event at Canberra Wetlands on the... Is it the 21st of this month? Yes, that's the Canberra City Farm. They're having an open day for the start of their new food box system. Um, so you can, if you're wanting to get a food box, you can go along and you can register and you can talk to the producers about what food will be available in the boxes in the in the coming weeks. So the boxes are um, initially going to be fortnightly, and then as the season progresses, because in Canberra most of the produce sort of starts coming in in sort of December, January, the, the summertime, um, they they may look to go more weekly but at, at a initial starting they're going to be doing it fortnightly so you can come and talk to the producers and find out what great uh, produce is going to be in the box and, and how it's grown um, when I go I shop at the farmers market at Woden they've recently moved but I love going and talking to the farmers there and I, you know, I talk to the guy who sells the eggs and we talk about his dogs and I talk to uh, the the lady who has the organic sausages and we talk about what's happening on the farm and it's a great way to connect and that I, I I really enjoy you know that interaction that you have directly with the producers I mean I buy produce that we don't produce on our own little urban area no mm. space for a sheep in Canberra <laughs> well in Hackett there is <laughs> there's a guy there who actually he moved in from a farm and he kept one of his old rams and the ram is now his lawnmower but he doesn't have enough lawn to keep the ram busy so he spreads it out with his mates and you see around Hackett this ram is tethered in people's front yards we had two guinea pigs for our lawnmowers <laughs> yep. but uh, speaking of that there's actually a group in um, in Melbourne who have a they've got a what's called a food street so there's a group of neighbours 
in, in a particular area. I think they're in Brunswick, which is quite an inner suburb of Melbourne, and they have a goat that they pass around the neighbours, and when you have the goat, you get to milk it, and then when it moves on, you, <laughs> you know, it eats the grass in somebody else's backyard. But it's a great sort of community resource that they have that they that they have and there's also um, another food street um, in Brisbane that uh, you know they've organized themselves so each um, I suppose residential house grows a particular type of produce and then they've got a collection of those houses in their in their um, on their street and then they all just swap produce so if you're good at growing tomatoes great you grow the tomatoes if you if you're you know, better at growing carrots or something else, then you specialise in what your area is. But you, know, you still get that benefit of sharing all those different varieties of produce. Yeah, interesting. So this is all at a, a fairly small scale. I guess in, in the agricultural scale, it might be a micro or a nano scale sort of production. And what, what's the difference between, or some of the differences between the, uh, the, the scale that you guys are talking about in, in the urban setting or suburban setting as well, I guess, and the, the conventional growing of all our food? Well, I think uh, cities don't have a lot of space to start with, so it needs to be on a small scale. And a small scale is more resilient as well. Like it, if, as long as it's um, integrating lots of different, different elements, you know, it can become a very strong small-scale structure. Yeah, right. Can you just say a word about resilience for us? I've, I've heard it a bit, but uh, if you could unpack it just a bit for me, that'd be brilliant. Right. So one of the principles of permaculture is to value diversity. So instead of growing a monoculture, grow a forest. So I'm involved in the Lynham Commons, and that's a community organisation where we're planting a community food forest. So it's a... Um, agricultural system based on nature so nature forests things nature will turn grasslands into forest using succession so it'll start with weeds which will establish um, the soil and build it up until you can get large trees so we've taken that process and we've hacked it to produce food for people so anyone can come along to the Lyme Commons and come and help and learn how to do it and plant a tree yeah, nice, nice. So where is the Lynham Commons? In Lynham. <laughs> Just behind the shops. <laughs> down behind the shops and past yeah. the school on the way to the storm drains, I think. Is, that, is it. that it down there? Exactly. Yeah, and you'll see some some long mounds with Ooh. trees on them. Yeah, we call them swales. They're water harvesting features. <laughs> yeah, and we've planted two berms at the moment with uh, 14 fruit and nut trees. So, uh, yeah, in the future, it's going to produce a lot of food. We might think that, um, sure, individually, it's a very small area, but if you combine your suburban grass area, it is actually a fairly large area, and if everyone in your suburb just grew something other than grass and roses well, then you could actually produce quite a lot of food. Now, Katie and I were interested in, um, through the 100 kilo org, um, actually how much we produced. Now, we were the first ones to register that we'd produced 100 kilos in our backyard for that season. And it took us seven months. It took us, it took us seven months to produce 
our first 100 kilos. Now, it took us 40 days to produce the next 100 kilos. It took us 66 days to produce the next 100 kilos. And then it took us 29 days to produce the next 100 kilos. Getting into the right season, That's eh? right. So from, from August 2015 to the 22nd of June 2016, we produced over 400 kilos of fruit and vegetable in our own suburban block. Yeah. And that's a fairly good harvest. That's if you were um, converting that into dollars. If you just go to an online supermarket um, pricing system, that was two thousand seven hundred dollars worth of fruit and vegetables that were produced on our own garden. Yeah, right. So what? But I was going to say the big difference between um, urban agriculture and large scale is labour. Now. Labor is very, uh, I mean, it's time-consuming and it's costly. So in a in a suburb, you have most people have the time to put in the labor into a small uh, suburban area. But once you go past, um, they say one person can um, intensively manage about a hectare of of land, and past that, you need to keep adding people. Now. In large-scale um, agriculture, they don't add people; they add tractors, and they add machinery, and they add um, um, equipment that's going to use fossil fuels as a replacement for the human labour. Um, in countries that aren't as developed as Australia, um, they still use people, and that's where you see, you know, large farm labouring um, you know, labourers out in the out in the fields and. Even if you go to um, country areas of you know, rural areas of Australia where they do do agriculture, you'll see a lot of people out in the fields picking the produce because um, to get the produce that's you know not blemished and not bumped and not bruised, a lot of it doesn't work with mechanical harvesting. It still needs to be human harvesting to to look after and care for that that produce. So labour is a big difference um, in 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 the difference between urban and uh, large-scale agriculture. I mean, I don't think there's too many people who want to put a, a combine you know, harvester through their front yard to harvest their oats. But we did grow a crop of oats, and I can attest to the labour that it requires to pick <laughs> the oats, thrash the oats, you know, get the hulls off, winnow it, and then, you know, in the end, I kind of went, oh, man, this is hard. Um, let's... Let's just replant the seeds and see what we do next year. And I haven't actually got to the part where I got to steam them and turn them into porridge for breakfast, which was my original plan for growing the oats. Yeah, but right. It was so time-consuming time that I just didn't get there. So there's lots of facets to the food system. <laughs> and there yeah. needs to be, because there isn't necessarily um, all the time in the world for us all to be devoting that many hours to making our porridge in the morning. But that's true, and I mean... I have a full-time job, so my time that I can spend in my garden is, you know, outside those nine-to-five hours. I mean, you know, I regularly spend, you know, two, maybe two, two hours a day or three um, working on our food production. Yep, yep. And, you know, it wasn't just the food, but it was also at the end of the season, we collected all the seeds from the plant so that we could grow a crop again the next year. So, you know, saving seeds is also an important aspect 
to continue the cycle. I mean, it's great to be able to go to those companies who provide the seed catalogues, but it's also equally as good to be able to, you know, save the seed and reuse it again the, the next year. And I think when you produce food on a small scale and you're producing it yourself in your own backyard, you get a higher quality of food. You know, it's nutrient dense and you can do it organically without chemical inputs, you know, and there's less transport involved. So there are lots of bonuses to growing food on a small scale in your own backyard. You start at your own doorstep, you know. And there's a lot of satisfaction in that too. I grew that. How good is that? Oh, you can't help but think that when you bring it inside and eat it or cook it, or if it gets that far. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Completely. But, um, I mean, there's a uh, there's sort of a, a myth around that, that small-scale agriculture is a bit inefficient compared to the big broadacre stuff. I mean, what, what sort of yields are you getting over, say, a year from, say, a wheat paddock and in your own backyard? The wheat paddock I probably haven't got the numbers on, but... I think a lot of it actually in, in a smaller scale agricultural sense comes back to um, planning to the season that Greg was talking about earlier, particularly in Canberra, we've got a very specific climate and a, and a particular window where it's easy to grow things. So um, I think a lot of people, particularly if you come into Canberra from a, another climate, um, kind of struggle with getting used to that that seasonal cycle and how short the growing season actually is so i think uh, with a lot of things like this the lesson is don't get mad get organized actually start early but put the right things in at the right time i think is one of the other things i've really learned so in on that smaller scale um, planning becomes important but also i think from what we're talking about here um, neighbourhoods and communities are a real opportunity in an urban agriculture space because you can actually share in your neighbourhood, as um, Katie was alluding to earlier. Um, if if you're good at growing something and somebody else isn't, then share it. But also, like we were talking about chickens earlier, not necessarily everybody needs the chickens in their backyard. If your neighbours have got some, borrow them for the weekend and have them tidy up your yard for you. <laughs> Because yeah. two, two chickens is probably enough for our backyard. I mean, they've sort of put paid to the lawn a bit. <laughs> and there's also an important sort of neighbourly aspect to this as well. Uh, having chickens and animals, not everybody is used to that. So making sure you have a conversation with your neighbours. And even when you're talking about things like pl planting fruit trees, how big are they going to be? Where are they going to be? We've got a really good conversation going on in Canberra, I think, at the moment about verge gardening. Um, and to your point about what sort of scale are we talking about, I think verges are actually a big opportunity for urban agriculture and there's lots of um, different places in Australia and around the world that are trying that at the moment so it's good to see the conversation in Canberra. Um, I was actually talking to the Deputy Mayor of Ballarat City um, earlier in the week and they're doing um, Verge uh, they've changed their regulations on Verge Gardens and the way they're approaching it is the, the council is actually um, essentially owning the basic shape and size of a of a verge garden and you buy or loan from the council your garden's construction so that it's consistent all around the city it looks like how their regulations are going to go so that everybody can be comfortable that it looks fine that it's going to be within the regulations and all that sort of thing so i think we've probably now got some learning in in the act to start to pick up some of those sorts of ideas so we can make these things work yeah and do you do you have to do a dial before you dig or anything before you stick your garden fork in your front verge yeah, it probably depends how deep you're going to dig, but if you're going to seriously dig a trench to put in a whole row of fruit trees, that's probably a very good idea. Yeah, there's gas and water and electrical in there. That's right. Yeah. I think some of the um, big differences between 
um, urban farming and um, and large scale farming is the fact that, like Katie was saying, that once you get over the size that's capable to intensively farm by one person, the large scale farmers add machinery. Now, when you add machinery, it generally means that you dig the soil. Um, whereas if you're intensively farming by yourself, what you can do is you can use a, what you call a no-dig um, system. Now, a lot of people don't realise that um, to get healthy, good vegetables, you need the first step is to get a healthy, good soil. Now, there's so many li living organisms inside soil that transfer your minerals and your nutrients into the plant system. It's not just the root going down into the soil and absorbing that. There's a lot of um, bacteria and other uh, organisms in that system that actually attach themselves to the root systems and transfer those, those minerals. Now, when you're going out into um, large-scale farming, when the plough goes through that soil, it rips up the living area of those living entities and they die. So you're not getting, um, you're not getting the nutrient in that food anymore because of the fact that those organisms are not alive in that soil that you're growing. So that's why a lot of the food that we eat from the shops these days are low in nutrient because of the fact that we don't have that transfer. Now. What happens is that a lot of those uh, organisms die and the food uses those organisms as fertiliser to, to grow. And that might work for three or, four, three or four growing systems, but then what happens is that you need to put fertiliser back in your soil. So you've increased your cost to produce the same amount of food, but what ha actually happens is usually you get less food than you have to put in more fertilizer in so your costs increase and you gain you get yes less yield now there's a lot of farmers these days that have realized that and that they've rechanged how they farm and they're finding that their yields are increasing and their costs are decreasing because they're not buying fertilizers anymore there was a study done in in um, new zealand and what they did to the farm. The farm had no worms in its system and they reintroduced worms into the farming system, changed, left everything exactly the same how it was. And in the first season, that, that farm produced 30% more crop. And then consecutive seasons, season after season, it always produced 25% more crop than what it did before it had worms in its system. So you have to look after the environment of your soil and it's a lot easier to do that in a urban environment than what it is in a environment where you're using machinery. Yeah, well, I guess that's what uh, Wes Jackson calls the eyes to acres ratio, where yeah, yeah. he he puts forward that if you've got a lot of labour on the on the ground per unit of area, who are actually concerned with the soil and the life in the soil, then um, they're enabled, I guess. The more people there are, the easier it is to see problems and to look after your soil and, and address any problems that might come along. Definitely. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's a great Japanese expression, which is that the best fertiliser is the footsteps of a farmer. It's actually being out there looking and paying attention at what's going on that makes a big difference. But to what Greg was talking about there plays out in a backyard scenario as well. And what I often hear people talk about when they put in a new veggie garden is everything works really well in the first year because we've got new soil, we've got you know, a watering system in if we're lucky and we've picked the plants pretty carefully. And then as you get to year two and three, the yield actually starts to go down or things don't grow as well or you get more bugs. And that's usually where, because you've just kept planting straight in, as Greg was saying, the trick is if you get nothing else right, get the soil right and keep adding into the soil um, more nutrients, whether that's through planting grey manure or using worms or worm castings or um, buying... Uh, I think there's one of, the, one of the local scout groups will sell sheep poo at a certain time of the year around here and go and buy some stuff from them. Um, the trick is recharging that soil so that it's got the nutrients so you do get that bumper crop because I think yeah. I've... A couple of years ago, I had a garden that was one and a half by three metres and about half of it was planted with tomatoes. And I accidentally grew 60 kilos of tomatoes just because it was new soil. <laughs> and they just took off and I just couldn't eat enough. That's where some of this 100 kilos thing came from. I was like, far out. What do we do with all this? Yeah, we made lots of sauce. <laughs> That's right. And there's only so much of that you can do. So, <laughs> so I think the soil is scale. really, really critical. I think small scale can be way more productive and way more sustainable than large scale. Yeah, right. Yep. Mm. And is that to do with maybe having more than one crop in a year? Or Totally. It's all about diversity and building your soil, looking after your soil. Farm that first and it will grow your plants for you. Mm. So I guess if we're looking at one, I guess all of our staples really are grasses and how much of the soil profile does a grass actually use? Like, Does it go right down deep to the bottom or is it just using a little bit up the top? It depends greatly on the grass. Um, grasses such as um, alfalfa and lucerne um, grow, uh, their roots go much deeper into the soil profile. They can grow down to three metres, whereas other crops um, are much more on the surface and will grow within the top, so 50 centimetres is where a lot of the other crops so it really does depend on the grass, you know, the grain crop. Or the forb, yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that you're growing. Yep. Yeah. So um, you mentioned, Elizabeth, about um, the need, if you're exporting energy out of your soil in the form of food, then you need to pop something back in. Does being in an urban setting present any, uh, any special sources of that input? What, what's good about being urban that you can you can throw back into your soil. Um, in some respects, it's convenience, I think. You can just go down to the local hardware store or landscape supplies and top up if you happen to have the cash to do that. Uh, and and I would say anything that's that's got some sort of manure in it is usually a good starting place as long as that's been rotted down and there's access to, to those sorts of things. I have to say one of the other things I love in Canberra is the tiny green sheds. Because if you want stuff to build some sort of structure to, to hold something, it's just great to be able to um, get cheap building materials. That's actually much harder elsewhere. Um, I think the other opportunity, <coughs> excuse me, is going to be, I think Canberra's now looking at um, green waste recycling. And that's 
I think is a really important link in the system here because I think it's a third of our waste is still food waste um, in most areas of Australia. So I think if Canberra is able to then recycle that food waste, it should be going back into some sort of urban agriculture to a large extent. And that's actually going to close the loop. So those nutrients have come out of the ground into your garden, you've eaten them, maybe you've thrown out the scraps and whatever, or they've gone into a compost heap. And I think on a large scale, um, that uh, recycling program will have a big effect. But on a smaller scale, yes, you can compost. It's a bit of a tricky thing to get going initially. Um, my, I'll probably hand some of that over to the rest of the panel, but I'd have to say the great starting point in Canberra for compost is go get some leaves in autumn. Hang, go find the leafy green suburbs because and grab a bag of leaves, even if it's only one, and use that to start your compost, and it's amazing how quickly it just kicks it off and it just goes. If you've got the right timing, you'll find that someone's already bagged them for you too. Oh, even better. <laughs> so... What we love autumn, we love Canberra, we love that they planted all these great deciduous trees um, around the city and every, well, every autumn we go around to the area and we collect the leaves. We get trailer loads of leaves and we just put them, you know, there's a bit of time and effort in collecting them but what we do, we just put them in a big pile in the backyard. We watered them. It's probably better if we sort of shredded them a little bit, but we didn't, we didn't do that. We just put them in a big pile. Let the bugs do the work for you. They compost it down. It takes about a year. And then so, when it, so you collect them in uh, the start of autumn. By the time you get round to autumn again, you, put, you, you can clean out that uh, rotted down leaf mould and it is the best thing to put onto your to your garden. It probably reduces by about oh, about three quarters from the leaf pile that you begin with down to the bottom but it is so nutrient rich and it's a wonderful thing to add onto your garden and with it's really mostly doesn't take you a lot of time. Um, it's a little bit of leaf collecting in autumn and then it just does its thing. Our uh, kids love it. The, the kids, we're putting it on the back of the trailer and the kids jump into the back of the trailer and our son's nickname is Leafy because he likes hiding in the leaves. Um, you know, we were in a, a suburb and I was um, there with just the kids at the time and one of the, the people that, that owned the property that I was collecting the leaves out the front, they came out and started talking to us and then they came back in a couple of minutes and they gave us a whole bag of fruit that was out of their backyard. This year we were uh, out in front of another house. The, the guy pulled up, said, hello, how you going? We shook hands, exchanged names, and he goes, hey, guess what? In the backyard I've got these big bags that I got given from some other person. Here, have some bags to fill up in the leaves. And it was so much easier collecting. And so you, you get to meet the neighbours and there's so many other people that you get involved with just going out and meeting the community. Yes, what's your best leaf collection technique? Have you tried using a tarp? Yes, we do. That's what we generally do. We rake, rake down onto a tarp and then use the tarp to lift up into the trailer. Yeah. Yeah, and you always have a tarp in the trailer as well. So when you unload, you can just pull the tarp, the tarp out. Ah, very good. But, very yeah. good. Uh, um, but that's the thing about living in an urban environment. There's all these resources that are available to you to go out and just collect i mean we were just scraping these leaves basically off the verges and off the road and out of the guttering um yeah everyone's quite happy just to have us take the leaves but there's other things that you can do i know of a a house uh, i think it's it's 
near Yamba Drive somewhere in Philip. I'm not exactly sure on the, the location, but he has out the front of his yard, he has a couple of uh, bays. They're probably about, you know, he's built them out of pallets and he just gets you know, local landscapers to come and drop off. He doesn't even have to go and collect. They drop off the, the green waste that they collect when they're doing their, their work and he just composts that and then you know, it's free for him. He doesn't even have to collect it. Somebody brings it to his house <laughs> and, and he just spreads it out and composts it. So there's lots of opportunity for, you know, collecting things um, from the communities and your neighbourhood in Canberra. I think that's, that's great. It's much harder if you move out into a, a rural area um, the neighbours aren't quite so close and they're a lot more guarded with you coming and collecting stuff. They want it for themselves. <laughs> Everybody's doing the same thing. But Yeah, my favourite way of making compost is with worms. If you can partner with those little guys, they'll do all the work for you. There's no turning involved and they'll make worm juice as well, which is a great amendment to put on your veggies. And I think in cities, a lot of our... Um, nutrients are getting flushed out of the city in a linear system you know through our sewers uh, humanure is uh well i think you can guess what humanure is <laughs> <laughs> and yeah so all those nutrients coming from us are just leaving but if we used a different smaller scale technique of collecting that and composting it down we could grow fruit trees and nut trees with that and it would be a great resource yeah, so what are, what are some of the limits that you might encounter when, you, when you're using your own poo as a fertiliser? Yeah, well, you've got to make sure that you're handling it safely. So there's a certain amount of time that you have to compost it for, and there's a dry composting method you use for that. But it's very safe. And afterwards, you just uh, put it around your fruit trees, and you'll get more fruit and yeah. taste your fruit. So would you put it on your carrots and parsnips, or...? Uh, you, you could, but you would probably recommend putting on fruit trees rather than so there's your another, veggies. Yeah. Another step away, yeah. yeah. So yeah. generally anything that you think might have a potential toxicity in it, um, even if that's things like people often ask about, um, can I grow veggies in a garden bed made with sleepers, um, treated pine sleepers? Um, if you're worried, then I think usually, as you say, planting root vegetables is not a good idea in that sort of scenario. Um, but you can consider planting other things that are, are less susceptible um, in that sense. So that just takes a bit of research and, and thinking through how you do some of these things. Yeah, right. Now, are there any other ways to deal with toxins? Because we're dealing with an urban area. I mean, it might have people might have been spraying with lovely organophosphates in the past and DDTs and all sorts of wonders and lead paint falling off your house and all sorts of things how, how do you deal with the, the legacy issues of all the wonderful toxins that we throw about ourselves these days i guess if you're really concerned the best thing you should do is you should get your soil tested um, from the outset so that you know what residues there, there are in your soil um, there are some um, processes that you can do to reduce the toxicity of, of some things. Um, I think it's slaters are very good at decreasing the toxicity, particularly I think it's in lead contaminated soils. Um, so there's also some you know nature helpers that also help take out the toxicity of some things. Um, if, in, if in doubt, um, you know, 
maybe bring in some soil of known quantity and known source to, to add to, to the top. And I think the other thing you can do there is also grow in containers if you're in doubt. Um, and that's really good in an urban environment as well, particularly if you've got limited space. And when um, I was living in, in the burbs and renting and moving around, I grew my, my veggies in plastic boxes that I'd bought at the supermarket with holes drilled in the bottom with the lid underneath. And I could grow quite well out of those. It's much cheaper than buying pots and I can get them exactly the right depth and size for, for what I wanted. And I could pack them up and move them when I moved to the next place I was renting at. So some of the things is, is if you've got a toxicity sort of issue, then it's making sure you've got a barrier like a container and, and new soil, as Katie was saying, um, so you can still have a go. Um, and even if it's just a few herbs on, on your patio or, or whatever, that's a really good starting point. Um, and, and you get the sense of what grows and what doesn't and, and what works well in your space as well. Um, and you can also check with your local council. They have... Um, there are regulations with the, the environmental officer on what's safe, um, what levels are safe um, in soil and in your area to, you know, to be able to grow to grow vegetables in as well. And different um, local councils have different... Um, slightly different interpretations on what those standards standards are. So um, when we were talking about humanure um, earlier, um, some councils in the, in the south coast of New South Wales um, are a lot more uh, open to, you know, using those types of, um, of things, whereas others are, are very uh, conservative in, in their use. And so it does ma make a difference on, on where you live. Um, some councils let you, say, use grey water to water around fruit trees and, and others say, no, you can only use it to grow grass. So it does depend on the councils and their, uh, I guess... You know, oats are grass, wheat's are grass, corn's grass. You could stretch their limits, but I think they're going to want you to mow it and, you know, like <laughs> cooch underneath I think the Barun Bay Council have plans for a uh, human newer composting system on their website, so they encourage it. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, I mean, all of the councils used to be really hostile to that idea in particular, and, and one by one they're turning. What's a good approach if you want to do something that's currently illegal? How do you go about sort of convincing your local authority that it might actually be okay? You can actually buy a commercial system which has been approved by councils. Yeah, yeah, right. So it's come that far now that there's something available that yes. is generally pre-approved. Yeah. Nice. And I think the internet is your friend. <laughs> <laughs> there's more and more examples, um, and they're not just overseas anymore. There's more in Australia. Um, as Katie was saying earlier, the urban food streets, there's lots of gardens, particularly around Melbourne and Victoria, and actually all around the country. It's amazing where all of these things are popping up. So... Um, a bit of research is your friend in that sense. It's go down to the public library and get on, on the, the computers and do some research and find some examples where people are doing it, what sort of system they run, what the regulations are. That takes a little bit of time, but you're pushing the edges, so you've mm. got to invest that if you, if you want to push the envelope. Um, but I think uh, organisations are becoming much more open to having that conversation. And probably the other thing is don't necessarily expect that as soon as you get your evidence, you're going to get yes, go ahead immediately. <laughs> Uh, that, that usually takes a bunch of time. But also, um, 
I think this is where it's very much a community issue as well. So do talk to your neighbours, talk to the, the people in the area because you can do all the research in the world, but if your neighbours um, aren't as happy with the idea as you are, then you're probably in a much more difficult position. So working together as a community on a lot of these things makes a lot of sense too. And that's the, the good thing about the, the different amount of groups that we all represent here is the fact that we're a fairly, fairly large group of people and if you get involved in these groups when the groups go to petition the can local councils to get some regulations changed they can show the membership behind the groups and they can show that the that they've we've done the studies we've we've done the uh we've got the information we can prove that it's successful it's only the fact that the legislation's old and it needs to be upgraded so and we've got the backing with the community so let's just change the legislation i'm sure shane rattenbury who's the um head of tams wouldn't mind us having a chat to him he'd be pretty open to it both i think might be a good time to be pioneer at the moment eh? yeah, yeah. There's, there's also um a number of years ago, there was a house in, I think it was in Ainsley, that was a very leading edge house in terms of the systems that they had, you know, as a standard suburban house block in, you know, in a kind of a suburb of Canberra. They had a composting toilet um, with human ear that they were able to compost and spread out on their garden. They had a grey water system that went through a reed bed um, that they were then able to direct onto their uh, onto their garden so it is possible to do it in Canberra I think I, they were the first ones that I heard of it did take them a lot of conversations a lot of information that they provided to the um, local council to, to get that approval but you know it, it has been done in Canberra so you know you can look to that as a you know as a pioneer model of what you can actually do in Canberra Hmm. Well, now, I reckon I'd like to do a bit of a thought experiment now with all of you. Um, so just imagine next week, oh, no, fuel prices have gone up heaps. I, I'm, oh, wow, yeah, okay, so it's gone up to $5 a litre. What could we do? What, what would the effect on our food be, and, and what could we do to, to address that? Start planting radishes, they grow really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> So what would the effect on agriculture be? I mean, agriculture, as you were saying, instead of adding people as energy, they're adding fossil fuels as energy, essentially. And if that becomes very expensive... So essentially we've got to localise a lot more of the food system to, to be able to cope with that cost. Because in the short term, at $5 a litre for fuel, you're right, the, the production cost for agriculture, for virtually everything we eat, would just go through the roof. And frankly, lots of the, the businesses would go bankrupt. Um, but also the distribution, all of the trucks that get this around the countryside to us, and, and particularly in Canberra, we're vulnerable with our season because it's hard to grow things um, in, in, through winter. Um, that would be a challenge. So the sooner we get started on actually growing things locally, the better, hence the, the somewhat flippant comment about radishes, but it's actually <laughs> a short-term problem to solve. You want to get something in the ground as quickly as possible that's going to grow really well. And, and we've got lots of space we can then use. Um, I was going to say, Canberra, uh, in their planning of um, trees, uh, when they built the city, there's actually a lot of fruit trees that they planted along the streets. 
okay not so good in winter when they're all asleep but uh, if you look around Canberra now you'll start to see the cherry trees are starting to be in blossom um, and there's a lot of actual produce that you can just pick off trees that are on you know in public spaces on the on the verges and on on your streets that you can utilize so Canberra's not in a, such a, a bad position in that way but yes the price of food would would skyrocket and, and um, you know people would be resorted to I'm not sure what they would actually eat you could learn how to forage there are yeah. a lot of people in Canberra foraging there's actually a foraging map that shows you where all the trees are that, and when they are fruiting what time of year so edible weeds as well there's a lot of things that grow on the side of the road you can eat like um, brassicas native brassicas and things like that so just yeah I've been looking at acorns lately and uh, once you've roasted your acorns and grind them into flour they'll last for years so, yeah. and we have a lot of bushland there's lots of bush tucker actually out in the Canberra Nature Park and places mm. like that which are around probably a lot of us aren't as familiar with them as we should be in a lot of respects but it's it's actually there and um, there's there's a relatively recent publication on, on Ngunnawal um, bush tucker foods that's that's definitely worth having. So there you go, we've got some reading to do before the prices go to $5 as well. Yeah, yeah. One thing Katie and I loved about Canberra is the fact that we came to live in a city that really was like a countryside. I remember when I was um, first here and I was living on the south side of Canberra and I was driving down... Um, a road to get to where I was heading and I was really concerned that I was going in the wrong direction because I felt like I was driving out into the paddocks (laughs) and I was going, I'm supposed to be in a capital city of Australia and I feel like I'm driving through a cattle farm. So there's a lot of farming area that's still out there that could be utilised in more of an intensive manner. Um, One thing that we could do is we could put the solar panels on our own roofs rather than the solar farms that are setting up and we could grow food on the solar farms rather than getting energy. Hmm. So what can we do now to, to, to avoid that? Is, like we've been talking about fairly small micro-growing, is that scalable up to feed a, a population like Canberra? Could it be done? I think that's certainly possible. There's actually a lot of spare capacity around. If you If you go for a walk around the city... There's a lot of parks, but even unofficial land, we've got all those verges, we've got lots of yards around suburban houses, but also there's unattended blocks and and, um, land that actually, when you start looking, there's a lot more available in terms of the space. So I don't think the space is necessarily the limitation. It's our ability to organise ourselves and actually then get in and and plant things. And there's a lot more of those activities going on, I think, with with lots of the different groups that we're involved in here. But that's as as simple as, you know, chuck some seeds in in your front yard near your letterbox, make it something edible rather than something that's not edible and, and you've got a resource there immediately but actually go for a wander around your your suburb or your town even where where you work if if you're working in an an office block or an industrial area you'd be surprised to see how much land there actually is that we can use so we need to start thinking a bit more about how we use that in a productive edible sense so that we do save some of those food miles if you like and there are people in other uh, parts of australia who are concerned that we're not fully prepared for that big um, you know, spike it 
uh, price hike in fossil fuels and are doing a thing called guerrilla gardening where they're grafting you know edible edible you know bits branches onto other and onto ornamental trees so you know you'll go down there you know so instead of having all those nice ornamental cherry trees we could you know graft edible cherry trees onto onto those sort of things and there was a a, a quiet one that was in the news a while ago of a, a uh, a guy who planted pineapples up a middle of a highway in on the Gold Coast, in terms of you know <laughs> making an area that's you know edible for for food. Yeah. yeah, I think we do have everything we need to survive without oil and coal. We just uh, we become lazy because oil and coal is a very um, high powered energy source. And the problem is that it's a store of energy, so it's going to run out at some stage. But we've got the sun. It's a giant solar capacitor floating right around the... Well, we're spinning around it, actually, but that's a great source of energy. We just need to learn how to use these cycling energies like the wind and the sun and the earth and water. The ocean. <laughs> yeah, the ocean. And our feet. They're always great for getting around. Yeah, they are. They are. And it's always the bicycle. It's brilliant. Is anybody sort of... I, I can only imagine that you'd have to do something on an enterprise sort of scale. I mean, everybody growing food in their own backyards is good for veggies and stuff, but what about the staples and the, the big foods that you need to stockpile for an off-season or something like that? I think edges. That's where edges come in. So the edges of the cities are the places where you can have broader acre farming and um, you're still close to the city, but you've got cheaper land and... You can use the resources. The people from the city can travel out by train or by bike. Uh, it's what they used to do in Europe before we started using oil. Yeah, yeah. So is anybody doing that or looking at it in Canberra so far as you know? Not as far as I know. I think some of this is cultural as well, kind of as you alluded to earlier, Silas. In, in Italy, when you drive down a freeway, there is food all along the freeway. <laughs> Here we've got grass that we've got to mow <laughs> or poison, <laughs> depending on what the, the management regime is. And occasionally, I have to say, you find apple trees or peach trees or pear trees, which are usually fabulous with very few pests, which is interesting. Um, so we've got those sorts of spaces that we can use. But I think you're right. That's a scale where we need to actually think about how we do that as a community and, and be organised enough to, to scale up and manage that. But the space is there as, as we've talked about it's a matter of finding the opportunity and i suppose it's being prepared to pay for it so that it's worth someone's while to farm it as well absolutely yeah what we do have in the city here is a resource of spending power so we can decide what we want to buy and we should demand nutrient dense food which has been grown without chemicals and without too many inputs by local farmers mm. So I know some of the uh, some of the co-ops that are starting up overseas doing this sort of thing have been using what they call anchor institutions like hospitals or unis. They're, they're big centres that are always funded that aren't able to move anywhere and they've been organising with them as, as a market essentially to start their business. So do you reckon agriculture and urban agriculture would fit in well with, a, say, a university? think that definitely works and the, and the co-op uh, associated with the ANU is, would be a really good starting point for that I think because they have a lot of that infrastructure in terms of how the co-op works already uh, established and, and uh, a means of doing that 
and it's then a matter of sort of building on top of what's already there in that sense. It's, it's definitely a resource. Um, if you're going to a university that has like an agricultural base, um, I know that there was um, uh, some, I'm not sure the country they went to, but uh, the cities are very dense and there was not a lot of area for them to, to grow um, plants and they were um, wanting to look after bees. And so they, they put their bee boxes on top of the university buildings and what they set up was a system within the university where the, the agricultural classes had to actually spend time each week up on the top of the roofs looking after the gardens that they had set up on the buildings to produce um, environment that the bees could uh, to live in. So as long as you've got a, a university that can um, use its students in an effective way so that they learn while there's other benefits being involved... And I think actually we've got a little bit of this happening in, in Canberra already. I think it's Marici College has quite a large kitchen garden at the school that essentially supplies the canteen at the school. So that's a much smaller scale than you're talking about. But like Katie was saying earlier, we've actually got examples in our own region and, and locally where some of this is happening. And there's examples in other places in Australia where hospitals, for example, are starting to try and buy as local as they can. And that's a challenge with, with the budget situation that hospitals face and, and the costs sometimes associated with that. But they are working through it and they are actually making it work. So mm. we've, we've, got some, we've taken some baby steps, I suppose, in, in Canberra with Marici College and, and there's a couple of others around um, the, doing similar things. The ANU has the food co-op. They also have a rooftop garden growing veggies up there. What are, the, what are the models of food distribution? At the moment we've got supermarkets which have been around for, I don't know, 70 years or something apparently and um, I guess that... What, what do you have? You have growers growing vast amounts of food who sell to a big supermarket chain at the lowest possible price and then the supermarket chain sells straight to us, so at the highest possible price. What are, the, what, what are some other forms of distribution? You mentioned a food hub right at the beginning. What's a food hub? So a food hub is, is usually a, a small-scale distribution system, so essentially um, a bunch of local, usually smaller scale, but not necessarily producers, but a, a network of local producers um, established a the hub which is the where all of the produce is brought together it's usually aggregated and then distributed out to consumers in one way or another so it's almost a, an extension to the sort of concept that Silas was talking about earlier of the food box so the the typical way these things start is a bunch of growers around a region get together they organize to get their produce into a, a mixed sort of food box so if I'm growing lettuces and you guys are growing tomatoes and someone else has got carrots Instead of consumers getting having to go 10 different places, they get it all in one box delivered on a regular basis or dropped off to a, a location. So the benefit for the producers is usually that essentially they're cutting out a middleman. So they've got um, that portion of the profit that they're getting, which makes their enterprises more sustainable. Um, from a community perspective, you get much more engaged with the people who are producing your food. So you can have much more confidence in the quality that it's produced, the sort of place that it's produced, and also that the money that you're spending is cycling back through your community because that's a big effect. When you buy with local producers, you get this multiplier effect. Um, so food cubs can work that way, which is almost from the producer end. 
that they can also work from the consumer end, which is where people kind of organise buying groups. So you could get together with a bunch of your mates or, or your neighbours and decide, okay, we want to source our food collectively because it's easier for us because often you get a better price when you can buy in a greater quantity. Um, but it's also easier for the producers because they've then got less people to deal with. So either way, it, it centralises the distribution of the food while getting good quality food to the, the consumers and, and a fair price for the producers. So that's the concept of a hub, is bringing those things together. Uh, and it is working um, all around the world. It is still a challenge with the grains and the things that tend to be um, more efficiently done on a, on a broad acre scale. It's usually more with fruits and vegetables and nuts and, and dairy and those sorts of things. But across the world, people are working through that and actually getting the model matured so that it deals with the whole range of things we want to eat. Mm. A lot of that problem can come from the fact that um, we're large wheat eaters and um, really in the past we weren't such so a lot of that comes with a choice of diet as well so if we just choose not to consume so much wheat well then there won't won't be that need for that product I know it's it's easy to say and hard to do um, because uh, it's really ingrained into our system eating eating bread and and uh, all the wheat products but um, if you don't wish to support that system well then don't consume that food. So uh, back back to your question it's really one of centralization and convenience so the consumers have the convenience of going to one shop getting everything that they need and then going home again. In the past that hasn't always been the case um, you know before we had all those supermarkets, so say 70 years ago, the greengrocer would come past your house and you'd pick up what you wanted from the greengrocer. The milkman would come past in his truck and you'd get your bottle of milk. The baker would come past. So you, you see, you know, once upon a time, the shops used to deliver to the consumer where it seems to have turned around now where, you know, we've centralised our food distribution. We just sort of put it all in one big place and now the consumer has to go it's on the consumer to go and, and pick it up. So, um, But you can still maybe not go to those big supermarkets. You can also go... There are some places where you can go to the farmer and you can pick up your milk if you own a cow that's, you know, adjusted on that farm. Um, there are those options around Canberra now if you're wanting to have you know organic milk for example you can go to the farmer you can, essentially you get the milk from your cow and you take it home again yeah um, nice there I are some of those you. options i mean it it we the, the fuel you know the cheap oil and fuel that we have has created a system has changed the way that people shop so if that fuel is taken away again we need to change the way that we shop it's a change with society once again. Yeah, that's right. It would be much less energy, really, for the shop to be driving around the suburbs than for the whole suburb, each one of them, to be driving to the shop. And there's also other things that people do in terms of managing that distribution so that 
Uh, if Katie goes to the shop and, and fills up her car with stuff and then stores it at her place and I live next door and I can come pick it up from, from her, then I haven't had to make that journey and we've saved those resources as well. So there's actually a way you can manage this at a community level too um, and that's sometimes done where people just set up literally your neighbourhood drop-off point and it's somebody's veranda or fridge out on the, in the garage or whatever and, and it actually saves people time and energy and money because it's less trips all round um, and it's pretty simple to actually manage. Yeah, yeah, well I've seen that working for 25 years from a farm at Barndor. So That's right. Yeah. Um, Alright, we've only got five minutes left so if, uh, if you want to just sum up maybe any thoughts you might have on how people might want to look at food in the future or, or look at growing or anything like that. So I think a lot of it is, is start at home and look at the way that you do things and because there's simple things that, that we can do. So like Greg was talking about changing how much wheat you eat. Plant lettuce. It's amazing how much more salad you eat and how many fewer sandwiches you eat when you've got a lot of lettuce. So yeah. start simple. Start what you know. Start with what you like and, and work from there and connect in with the community. There's lots of expertise here and lots of groups that you can uh, connect with in Canberra. Definitely. I, I really... Um, what I like about producing our own food is the fact that it gives us back the control of the produce and the chemical content that is going into our mouth. If you're buying from the big chain supermarkets, you're buying product that they can get cheaply and farm cheaply. And a lot of that product, you don't know what chemicals have gone into it. You don't know whether it's GMO. Food listing is getting better, but it's not as not where it should be. And if you really want to control the food that you're feeding your family, it's really important to know where that food comes from, know the farmer that you're getting it from, or be the farmer yourself. For me, it's uh, the first step in a permaculture design is observation. So I think if everyone starts observing their own um, behaviour and how it affects everything, like how much plastic um, their shopping produces and all those things, then you can start making changes from where you're at. And like Elizabeth said, start where you are. Start at your own back doorstep. Cool. Uh, yeah, I guess it's all about um, thinking local and acting local, but you know, also thinking about the, the global perspective. Um, Australia uses something like 5.4 Earth resources a year. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. I'd like to try and have us use less and I guess a, a petrol price of five dollars a litre would probably be actually a, a great thing for for earth and its you know sustainability into the future people are concerned about the sustainability of the planet but really I think it's sustainability of our human culture and society that we're more concerned about um, it's only a matter of time really so let's be ready <laughs> All right, well, thank you, everybody. Thank you, uh, Silas Brown, Elizabeth Goodfellow, Greg and Kate Bates. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, we'll go out with the formidable vegetable sound system with Let's Get Together. Awesome. Nice.